0: Welcome to Sermon Audio from King Street Church, where it's our purpose to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. For more information about our church, please visit our website at kingstreetchurch.com. As we get ready to read God's Word this morning in James chapter 4, I encourage you to go ahead and flip there, and I'm going to spend just a moment praying for us as we open up God's word and hear God's word preached um, because we need God's help to do this. If you're in James chapter 4, you'll see in verse 6, but he gives a greater grace. Well, grace is a gift. And we're told in James chapter 1 that if we lack wisdom to ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach, And so why don't we go to God together this morning, asking him to help us and to give us this greater grace to be able to do what this text tells us to do. Would you pray with me? Father, your text here, your word here in James chapter four promises us that you give a greater grace so that. While we oftentimes are like spiritual adulterers, double-minded in our ways. And while you are a jealous God, you're consuming fire, a jealous God who d- demands from us our all. That we'd not be conformed to the ways of the world, as we've just read about in these other passages. That we'd be transformed through the renewing of our mind. That we'd be sold out completely for you. That we'd be in the world and sent to the world, but not of it. That we'd be in the world, but that we wouldn't love it and the things of it. And so while you are a jealous God and you do not give your glory to another, and while we often feel like these spiritual adulterers, verse 6 reminds us, but you give a greater grace. And so we don't come to you today as people who are going to muster out obedience by our own strength and our own power. But we come to you this morning as people who need your grace in order to do what your word calls us to. And we just believe, God, we believe that if you've given us a command, you give us the grace in order to obey it. You've given us of your spirit so that we love you and treasure you above other things so that we would obey your word and follow you in faithfulness. And we don't want to be like an unfaithful bride, like spiritual adulterers. We want to be a faithful bride unto you. But we know we can't do it on our own. So we come to you today humbly asking for your help. Asking for wisdom. Asking for strength. Asking for grace. Asking for help to overcome these things that often fight for our attention so that we're double-minded. And that we would turn away from those things completely. And give ourselves wholeheartedly to you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's read our passage this morning. It is James chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. James chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. So here it it is. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose... He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Friends, don't we know that human beings are creatures of allegiance? Which means that you and I ultimately live for something. We live for something. So wherever you find a tribe in the world, there's going to be people who pledge allegiance to that tribe. And the same thing goes for countries and flags and schools and sports teams because in one way or another, all of us are fanatics of something. We live for something. But did you also know that with all the thousands upon thousands of things that are begging for your allegiance in this world, there are really only two ways in life. There are really only two kinds of people. There's those who pledge allegiance to God and those who pledge allegiance to the world. Those who live for God in His ways or the world in its ways. And so the question is this morning for all of us, which way will it be for us? Which way will it be for you? That's the question. You know, there's a true story in 1 Samuel chapter 8 about the nation of Israel. And Israel was called to be a light in the world to all the surrounding nations. And they were ruled by God, who was their king. So keep that in mind. God is Israel's king. Now they did have a judge they had a leader called a judge and who was also a prophet and this this prophet's name was Samuel and Samuel loved the Lord very dearly he cherished God's word but in Samuel's old age as his years grew closer and closer to the end the nation of Israel come before Samuel and they make a request of him and this is what they say in first Samuel 8 behold you have grown old and your sons do not walk in your ways Now appoint a king for us. Appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. So the nation who had God as their king and who was called to go and to be a light to all the other peoples now wanted to be like all the other peoples. They wanted a human king just like everyone else. And so the question is, what's God's response to this? Well, here's God's response. He The Lord said to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me. They have rejected me from being king over them. And so we see there are two ways in the world. There are two types of people in the world. Those who reject the Lord and his ways in favor of the world. And there's those who reject the world and its ways in favor of God. Which way will it be for you? Another story, just to make the point even more clear, this is Jesus. And Jesus tells a parable in Luke chapter 6. And so I'm just simply going to read that parable to you. And in this parable, we learn about two kinds of people. We learn about those who hear God's word and act upon God's word. And those who hear God's word but do not act upon it. So here's the parable in Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 46. Jesus asks this very provocative question Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? It's a good question. Why are you calling me Lord if you don't do what I've asked you to do? He goes on, Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them. You see that? Hears my word and acts on them. I'll show you whom he's like. He's like a man building a house. "...who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock, and when the flood occurred, the torrent burst against that house and could not shake it, because it had been well built. But the one who has heard and has not acted accordingly is like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation. And the torrent burst against it, and immediately it collapsed, and the ruin of that house was great." There are two ways and two types of people and those lead to two different kinds of destinations. There's those who hear God's word and act upon it. And there's those who hear God's word and do not act upon it. Those who give their allegiance to God and those who give their allegiance to the world. And the question is, which way will it be for you? As God's redeemed people, we should not be like those who hear the word of God and then fail to act accordingly. I mean, hasn't James already told us... In this book that we ought to be doers of the word, not not only hearers, which means we shouldn't come to church and hear God's word preached or go home and read the Bible in our own quiet times and then live lives without living out what we've read, what we've seen with by ignoring the word that we've received. I mean, James has told us, receive the word implanted, receive the word implanted, receive it in humility, receive it in obedience And you have to remember that if you are a follower of Christ, you can know that God has changed your heart. He's given you His Spirit to help you to obey Him. And so we shouldn't be like those who hear the Word and don't act accordingly. And likewise, we shouldn't be like the Israelites in 1 Samuel 8, who rejected God in order to become like the world. But today our text is written to Christians who have been double-minded. As the Israelites became like the other nations and as the Israelites rejected God we can often do the same thing making friends with the world and its ways in opposition to the God that we claim to love James's entire letter has been telling us don't be like this don't be double minded don't just be a hearer friend but be a doer don't just say you have faith but show it with your works don't Say you believe in Jesus if you show personal favoritism towards the rich. Don't try to be a teacher if you can't bridle the tongue. Don't claim to be wise if you're ruled by selfish ambition. Don't ask and pray to God with wrong motives to spend it on your own sinful desires. But the problem is that we're tempted to live in these double-minded ways, aren't we? And some of us in this room may be doing that today. So James tells us something very plainly at the beginning of verse 4. What he does is he highlights the seriousness of being double-minded. Of claiming the name of Christ and then living in this way. Here's what he says at the very beginning of verse 4. You adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. James calls our double-minded friendship with the world adultery. It's spiritual adultery. And so there are two kinds of people in the world. There are those who are friends with God and enemies of the world. There's those who are friends with the world, but enemies of God. Which way will it be for you? So as we look deeper, this text, what we're going to see about this text is that it is all about God's total claim on our lives. God demands our all, that we be given over wholeheartedly to Him. That we be given wholeheartedly to Him and Him alone forever. And while this text might seem daunting, which it will, the demand of being totally reserved for the Lord... So while that seems daunting, we're going to be reminded of a sweet, sweet truth in verse 6. God gives a greater grace. So however great His demand on your life may be, His grace is greater. And this is such a sweet reminder, isn't it? Of what Jesus said, that His yoke is easy and that His burden is light. God gives greater grace so that we can be wholeheartedly and lovingly and joyfully sold out for Him alone. And so the challenge for us this morning, the charge for us this morning is to repent of our double-mindedness and to bow down in humility. He gives grace to those who are humble. So to bow down in humility and submission before our gracious God as we look at His Word, as we open it up this morning and allow His Word to speak to us. So where we're going to be is we're going to be in verses 4, 5, and 6. And in doing so, we're going to focus on three things, one per verse. So in verse 4, we're going to come face to face with our spiritual adultery. And that's where we need to have our hearts open to allow God's word to speak to us and to tell us where we are. In verse 5, we're going to behold God's holy jealousy. And in verse 6, we'll rejoice over God's greater grace. Our spiritual adultery, God's holy jealousy, and then God's greater grace. So first, our spiritual adultery. We find that double-minded professors of Christ are given a taste of the seriousness of their sin in verse 4. It begins like this. Look at verse 4. Here's how it starts. You see it right there in front of you. You adulteresses. So one foot in the kingdom and one foot out. Coming to church, but living a life of sin outside of the church gathering. Selfishly seeking positions of leadership and influence in the church. Proclaiming sound doctrine in your head, and but not living out any of it with your heart and with your hands. What James calls this is adultery. He calls those who do this adulteresses. I don't know if you know this, but the Bible has another phrase that they that it uses to describe the church. And it calls the church the bride of Christ. We're Christ's bride. The one for whom He laid down His life and for whom He provides. And this marriage language that we see in the New Testament about the church, that we're the bride of Christ, this is taken from the Old Testament where God's people were called His bride and He was their husband. This is the kind of language that was being used. So here's Isaiah 54, verse 5. It says... For your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts. And what's interesting about this is that when Israel would turn against God and they would begin to serve false gods and live like the rest of the world, God called their sin a type of adultery. So here's Jeremiah 3.8. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one, Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. So turning our hearts away from our Redeemer and turning our hearts away from our God, being the bride of Christ and living these double-minded lives, it's like It's like spiritual adultery. James is bringing this language up, and I don't think I need to pick and prod at your imagination for long for you to consider the hurt and the pain when marriage vows are broken and unfaithfulness ensues. Well, God uses that kind of serious sin in order to describe our waywardness and our propensity to flip-flop back and forth between God and the world and the world and God. We're the bride of Christ. We ought not to be cheaters. Picking off of our plate what we like from God and then turning to other mistresses that we have, whatever they might be, whatever we find joy and and, and, and pleasurable out in the world. Don't be like that. That's what James is saying. Now let's ask a question because it might be a question that you're asking, that you're thinking in your mind. And that's this, what makes someone fall into this category? Who are the adulteresses that James is talking about in this, in this passage? And I would just propose, just at least on a very basic level, it's possible that some of the people he's talking about aren't like this. But also, I think we can say safely that this is people in the church living like friends of the world. Look at verse 4 again. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And so what he's saying is that those who seek to be friends with the world and the world's ways are hostile towards God. And they become, they're like God's enemies. So these adulteresses that he's writing to are people in the church. in this church that he's writing to living like friends of the world. Now, James is writing to churches. That's why I say most likely what we're dealing with here is Christians who are double-minded. They're they're coming to church. They have right doctrine. They're seeking leadership maybe in in ways because they want to be teachers, but they haven't bridled the tongue. But they're not living it out. And they're favoring the rich and they're causing quarrels, as we've seen in James chapter 3. Now, the reason why I have hope that these people might still be true believers is because James seems to have that hope. James says that God gives a greater grace. And he's writing this letter to correct them. And so he must think that there's hope for them to change. For them to repent and for them to get their act together. Now they might not change if they're not truly saved. And that's where we need to heed the warning here. If we continue in our ways, being friends with the world and not cherishing and loving God and living for Him. It might be an indication that we say we have faith, but does that faith save? The faith without works is dead. What does it do? So they might not change if they aren't truly saved. But if they are truly saved, I think what's going to happen, and I think this is what's going to happen in this room, is that we would read this letter and we'd heed this warning and we would turn from other ways. And so he's using this heightened language to show us the seriousness of our sin and to get us to wake up and to turn back and to know that... Hey, if you continue down this path, it might be that you never loved God in the first place, but, but I believe better about you. So know this that this is really bad. It's like you're being a spiritual adulterer, it's hostility toward God. It's like you're an enemy of His, you're acting like an unfaithful wife. I wonder if you get the sense of James using this heightened language to plead with your soul. And I also wonder that if, if you are double-minded in, in any way, friends with the world in some way, that maybe you haven't even shared with anyone else in this room. I wonder if you see this loving God on one hand in your life, but loving the world on the other. I, I wonder if you hear James's assessment here in James chapter 4, And you take his assessment at face value. And that you agree with his assessment of your situation. Because the temptation is to think it's just a little sin. What we read here when James uses this kind of heightened language, saying, You adulteresses, we find out that there's no such thing as a little dabbling in sin, there's no such thing as just a little taste. And while you might be tempted to consider your sinful actions and desires not a big deal, and I just do it here and there, God's word would beg to differ here in James 4. James calls it adultery. So run from it. Because God has a claim on our lives as his bride. All of our lives as his bride. And he's deserving of a faithful bride, not a cheating one. So if we're called adulteresses when we live in friendship with the world, I think it begs another question. We just ask, who are the adulteresses and what are they like? Now we want to ask this question. What is friendship with the world then? Because I don't want to be like that. Right? So what is friendship with the world? What does friendship with the world look like and what does it mean? Now, when James says the world, it might be obvious to you that he's not talking about the planet. Right? He's not, he's not talking about being friends with earth. He means something much more hideous. When the biblical writers talked about the world, what they meant was the entire enterprise that is opposed to God. All of the sinful establishments and values and worldviews and desires and all else that is opposed to God and His ways. John puts it like this. We read it in our service. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love... Of the Father is not in Him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. So John says, Don't love the world, and don't love what's in the world. And then he defines and tells us what it is that's in the world that we shouldn't love. And that's the lust of our flesh, our sinful flesh, the lust of our eyes, the boastful pride of life. And so, everything from pride to our evil desires and our sinful actions, all of these things are aimed at that which is opposed to God. Don't be friends with any of those things. They could be actions, they could be ideas. Reject them. That's the point. If you remember in James chapter 3, we get another little taste of what friendship with the world might be. Because this is who James is writing to. And he's already had to correct them on a couple things. James says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart. Which tells me that this is bad. That's opposed to God. And so the world, when James talks about the world, it's used to refer to actions and feelings and thoughts and desires. The whole enterprise that is opposed to God and His Word and His ways. And when James says it, to not be friends with the world, when he uses this word friends, he's talking about sharing in it. That we share in a unity and a bond with the world. So all these things that are opposed to God, if you're friends with it, You're united to it. And so you can see why friendship with the world would be hostility towards God, can't you? God is God. God is holy. He's deserving of all of our praise and all of our adoration and all of our submission. Yet we cuddle with and make friends with what is openly opposed to him. We establish a unity and a bond with ways and feelings and actions and beliefs and desires that are against God. And so the first thing for us to do if we wish to not be spiritual adulterers is to identify the ways that we make friends with the world. So I would just ask you, what worldly wisdom do you follow that isn't from God, but from man? What worldly beliefs do you hold to that are opposed to the truth of God? And what ways are you out of step with what God would have for you in walking in holiness? And I want to challenge you as you think about those things. And you consider what are the ways that I'm friends with the world so that you can reject them. I want to challenge you to not think in terms of small sins and big sins. But I want you to think in terms of total faithfulness to God or adultery against Him. When we think of little small sins that aren't that bad, we can excuse some of the wicked entertainment we enjoy. We can excuse the faulty mindsets that we have. We can look over the way that we spend our money here and the way we don't give our money there. Or we can chalk up our flaring tempers and our fights to simply being tired or stressed out. Instead, what if sinful entertainment that we indulge in is a way to seek enjoyment from what the world provides and what if it wasn't just a little movie with some ungodly and wicked images in it and things like that? But what if it was adultery? Well, what if you're spending habits for only yourself and your desires instead of for the cause of the church and for the poor and the work of the ministry in the world? What if you didn't think about that as just a little overspending over here and just it's slipping my mind over here? What if you saw it in terms of adultery? Because you've adopted a mindset and a pattern in life that God would not have you adopt. What if your temper at home is not just because you're stressed, but because in some way your desires and actions show that you're seeking to be a friend of the world? And now you might think that this is strict, but my dear brothers and sisters, I just want to challenge you that the recipients of this letter probably also thought that they were solid believers with sound doctrine and wisdom and understanding. They're seeking to be teachers, and they thought they were wise and they were understanding. And maybe they knew that they had problems and sins. They probably never said, I'm not sinful, but they didn't think it was this serious until James told them like it really was. And James has the same message for us today. And so unless we realize how serious it really is, unless we take his assessment of our situation at face value, why would we ever be motivated to leave it all behind with reckless abandon? If it's not that bad, then just keep doing it. But if it's an affront to the holiness and the glory of God, if it's some type of spiritual adultery to be friends with the world, then leave it. So that's enough about our spiritual adultery. And I hope that it's enough to prepare us to be able to receive the next point because now we turn to God's holy jealousy. So take a look at verse five. Or do you think that scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. Now this has often been one of the most Difficult verses in the Bible to translate, but there's one thing that we can see for sure in the midst of this, is that God jealously desires that we live for him with all of our mind. So look where it says, do you not think the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires... He's referring to the Scripture in a generic kind of way. And he's most likely referring to the range of passages in the Old Testament that talk about God's holy jealousy. For instance, in Exodus 20, a very famous passage, it's where the Ten Commandments are listed. And God addresses the nation of Israel, and He gives them what we call, and what we now know, the Ten Commandments. He tells them not to have any idols or false gods. And He says this, "...you shall not bow down to them." meaning the idols, or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And Moses also addressed Israel in Deuteronomy 4, and he told them the same thing. He said, So watch yourselves, that you do not forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which He made with you. And... And go and make yourselves a graven image in the form of anything against which the Lord your God has commanded. He's saying, don't do that. Watch yourself so you don't do this. Why? Verse 24 in Deuteronomy 4. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. The logic here is don't worship graven images because God is a jealous God. Now, when we hear that, it's important to know that God is not jealous the way that you and I are jealous when someone wins a prize and we don't win a prize. He's not jealous like us when someone else gets good news, but we've had a bad day. He's not jealous like sinful men and women who hate to see others succeed. He's jealous like a good husband is for the wife he loves very much. He's jealous like the most glorious who is deserving of all of our praise and worship and will not give His glory to another. He has a holy jealousy. A holy jealousy where He demands that we give Him our all, all of the time. And friends, God is deserving of all praise, but we're double-minded. Verse 5 reminds us, do you not know that God is a jealous God? God would not have you split between the world and Him. It's not acceptable to claim faithfulness to God, but to love the world and all that is in it. Our God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. He's the God that tells Peter and all the others to drop their fishing nets and their entire livelihoods and to follow him and to take on a new profession. He's the God that calls the rich young ruler to go and sell his possessions and to give to the poor and then to follow him. He's the God that says we are not worthy of him if we love our father and mother more than him. He's the God who would have His people see His worth as so supremely glorious and beautiful like a treasure in a field so they would sell all of their possessions and buy that field because the treasure is there. He would have us look throughout the universe and come to agree that He is the most supreme, that He is the most worthy, that He's the most valuable, that He's the most lovely, and that He's the one who's deserving of our entire lives. All of it, 100% of it, 100% of the time. God is a jealous God. And when He bids you to come to Him, When he calls you through the gospel of Jesus Christ, he bids all of you to come. Your whole being. And so I would just ask, what sinful friendship do you still have with the world? And which God would say to you today, son, daughter, I am the Lord your God and I will give my glory to no other. So cut your ties with the world even there. What thing might he ask you to do that, he is off, that that has often been off limits for you? That God can change everything else about your life or ask you to do all of these things, but not this part. Are you in a place of total surrender and worship that he could ask you to do anything or go anywhere and you would obey? Is there a blank check in which God can write on it what he wills? In what ways might God be saying, child, I am the Lord, your God, and I will give my glory to no other. Make yourself totally available to me. Or what thing could he ask you to do, but you wouldn't do it? What sin would he have you to stop, but you won't? What thing about your life would he have you to change, but you say, I can't do that? Where would he have you to go, but you're unwilling to go there? Who would he have you to reach out to? But you're not going to. Identify those things, dear brothers and sisters, and remember that He jealously desires your all. And remember that you are His, totally. Not some of you His, and not only His part of the time. Not only in that area of your life, but this area of my life He can't touch. No, you, all of you are the Lord's. Paul says in Romans 14, 8, For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. In Galatians 2, 20, Paul says it with more detail. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So if you're in Christ, it's no longer you who live. Matt Speaks is dead. I'm as alive as I've ever been, but I'm dead. It's this weird thing. But Christ is in me. You're God's possession. You've been purchased with a price. And so don't provoke his jealousy, dear friends. But give your all to him. If there's sin that you cling to, is it too much to ask for God to come to you and ask for you to cut off what kills and instead cling to the one who gives life? If there's a pleasure that you crave in the world, is it too much to deny yourself that pleasure and cling to the one who gives pleasure forevermore? Is that too hard to ask? Oh, don't be conformed, my friends, to the ways of the world, but be transformed through the renewing of your mind. God is a holy and a jealous God, so give Him all of you. Which leads to our last thing this morning. We've seen our spiritual adultery. and We've seen God's holy jealousy. Now let's rejoice together over God's greater grace. Because this is the good news we need. Look at verse 6. But He gives a greater grace. Therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, if all that we had was the reality of our waywardness and the reality of a jealous God, we would be stuck in our plight with nowhere to go. But James sweetly and tenderly confronts us with this truth. But God gives us a greater grace. So here's the flow of what James is saying. We double-minded people are like spiritual adulterers. We're friends with the world. And this makes us like enemies of God because He is a jealous God and He will not give His glory to another. And so He demands our all, all of us, all the time for Him alone. And this is a daunting task that is impossible for even the greatest and most mature Christian. But God gives a greater grace. Where the demands of wholehearted submission are great, God's grace is greater where the call on our life to be totally sold out for God, where that is tough and difficult, God's grace meets every occasion. Where there's some sin, some waywardness, some double-mindedness, that you're tempted to go in this direction, God gives the grace for you to not be held captive by those things. With God's commands come His grace to joyfully keep them. So perhaps you have some friendship with the world. In terms of some particular sin that you struggle with. And it clings to you. And it seems like you cling to it. And you seem to love it almost. But you hate the thing. You know it's adultery. You know it's turning your back on your Savior. But it's so addictive. It feels so good in the moment. It appears so lovely. It seduces so nicely. How can you avoid its trap? God gives a greater grace. In other words, there's not a single sin that you struggle with that stands a chance against the power of God's grace in your life. That doesn't mean we do nothing. Notice what happens right after James says God gives a greater grace. Here's verse 6 again. But he gives a greater grace, therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, what is the connection between that first part of verse 6 and the second part? What's the connection between God giving a greater grace and God giving grace to the humble? The connection is that God blesses the humble. He bestows grace upon them. And so the first way to receive grace, to overcome your sin, and to live wholeheartedly for God is to come before God in humility. It is to admit that you are truly in the situation that you're in and that you can do nothing on your own to remove yourself from it. To come to grips with reality. Yes, I've been living like a spiritual adulterer. Perhaps you're here this morning and you don't have a relationship with Jesus. You see these frightening words that Friendship with the world is hostility toward God. You might have all kinds of enemies, but the wrong enemy to make is God. To be a friend of the world is to be an enemy of the Lord. And the only way to go from being an enemy of God to being a friend of God, the only way of being under His wrath to being embraced by His grace is by trusting in the Son of God. All who humbly admit their waywardness and their need for grace, poured out by Christ on the cross, they will receive peace from God. They'll be no longer enemies, but they'll be His children. And so, if you're not a believer in Christ, the charge is to cast your soul upon God. Maybe you haven't humbled your soul before Him ever. Today is the day to do it. But if you are a believer and you know these things well, Why would you live as though they aren't true? And if it's because you've forgotten, the good news is that James has written us this letter so that we remember that our sin and our friendship with the world means that we're acting like adulteresses. But there is a greater grace for those who begin with humility. And so my charge for you is this, humble yourself. That's gonna be the focus of next week's message. And tell us to submit to God. Those who draw near to God, he'll draw near to them. Humble yourself. Humbly come before God with your friendship to the world and admit that that is the way that it is. Confess it to God and to one another because God gives a greater grace to the humble. Friends, this is not some great act that God is asking you to do. He's not telling you to pull pull yourself up by your bootstraps. He's saying, confess that you are in the situation that you're in. Come to me and humble yourself. And God gives a greater grace.